You are listening to Real Presence Radio. In the next hour, we have Dr. Jan George with us from Sacred Heart Productions, teaching on the New Testament letters. Dr. George, a retired university teacher of literature, has a Master of Theology from the University of Dallas. She is with us today covering Romans chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 20, which include the following three topics. Obedience of faith. Second, the retribution of God against an ungodly world. And third, the position of the Jews in view of retribution. Tune in at this time each week when Dr. George will be walking us through the New Testament letters from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program, produced by Sacred Heart Productions. Accompanying lessons for each week can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org, along with lessons and study guides for other New Testament books. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church. And now, here is Dr. George giving an introduction to the later letters of St. Paul, beginning with his letter to the Romans. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. There are 14 letters in the Pauline corpus, the Pauline corpus being the body of letters comprising a good portion of the New Testament. As we know from Acts of the Apostles, which St. Luke wrote, St. Luke was a traveling companion of St. Paul's, St. Paul completed three missionary journeys in his lifetime. And from these journeys, we have the letters that evolved because St. Paul, after founding churches and getting to know the people of God, would then write letters to the churches to encourage them and build them up, to answer questions that they had, to clarify issues and help them with problems, to correct errors sometimes in how they were living or in what they were believing and sometimes to warn them of the false teachers who were insinuating themselves among them and leading the people astray through their erroneous teachings and their bad example. Of the 14 letters in the New Testament canon, none of these were written during St. Paul's first missionary journey. His first missionary journey was traveled between the years of 45 and 49 AD. His second journey was between the years of 50 and 52 AD. And from this journey, we have what are considered the earliest letters of St. Paul. And in fact, 1 Thessalonians is considered the earliest document in the New Testament canon. So during the second missionary journey, St. Paul wrote 1 and 2 Thessalonians. His third missionary journey was traveled between the years of 53 and 58 AD. And in the series that covered the early letters of St. Paul, 
We dealt with 1 and 2 Thessalonians, his letter to the Galatians, which was written during his third missionary journey, and also his first and second letters to the Corinthians. Now in the present series, we are addressing the later letters of St. Paul, and we are beginning with his letter to the Romans, which was written very late at the end of his third missionary journey, around the year 57 or 58 AD. Now the letter to the Romans is a little different in that Paul had not founded the church in Rome. In fact, Paul had not even been to Rome yet, and he had been wanting to go there for a long time. As he tells us in the introduction, this is really one of the main purposes for his writing this letter. We find out if we read verses 8 through 13 that he says he had heard of the Romans, the Roman Christians, and their life of faith. He says, your faith is talked of all over the world. Now already the persecutions in the church were beginning from the very earliest days. Following Pentecost and in those years after, in the city of Jerusalem, there was, there was a lot of tension and eventually those who had converted to Christianity were being persecuted. There was a very severe persecution. Paul himself, Saul, was one of those who helped to instigate and to rile it up and make things worse. We read about the martyrdom of St. Stephen, his stoning, in Acts of the Apostles, and how, St. Luke writes, that very same day, a great persecution began to occur against the Christians in Jerusalem. As a result, they began to disperse and to travel, to move out over the countryside and even into the regions beyond. So this is one of the ways that Christians traveled and would have made their way to Rome. In addition to this, the apostles were sent out to the ends of the earth by Christ himself. And Rome was the capital city of the Roman Empire, a very important city. A lot of people went there, a lot of people lived there, a lot of people visited there. So Rome would have been a place where the apostles would have wanted to go and to proclaim the gospel and to found the church. We know that St. Peter, at the time that Paul is traveling his third missionary journey, St. Peter is already living and proclaiming the gospel in the city of Rome. He is working there with John Mark. We don't know exactly when Peter went there, but he could have been there as early as 42 AD, although there is a chance he did not arrive there until sometime around 50 AD or the very early 50s. At any rate, he was there and proclaiming the gospel. Now, Paul had not only heard many marvelous stories about the strength of the faith of the Christians in Rome, but also the Christians in Rome would have heard stories about Paul. They would have known Paul. To say the least, he was a controversial figure because, as we know, it was so difficult for him to, to get his brother and sister Jews, his own family, to understand that the salvation God had promised them was fulfilled, was realized in the person of Jesus Christ. 
But Paul, in being rejected by the Jews, then slowly figures out by the Holy Spirit that he is being sent to the Gentiles. It is through the rejection of his own nation, his own people, that he then turns and begins proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles. In his lifetime, he proclaimed the gospel to both the Jews and the Gentiles, often going into the synagogues first in the cities wherever he went. Now what he tells us in this introduction then is that he has been for a long time trying to make his way to Rome, wanting to plan a trip to Rome so that he can proclaim the gospel and live the life of faith among the Roman Christians. And he says, I hope that at long last I shall soon be able to visit you if it is God's will. For I am longing to see you, he writes, so that I can convey to you some spiritual gift that will be a lasting strength, or rather that we may be strengthened together through our mutual faith, yours and mine. He goes on to say that he had tried many times to visit them in the past, but had always been prevented. Now that he is approaching the close of his third missionary journey, his plans are to revisit some of the churches he founded, some of the peoples he had come to know, and to make his way east back to the city of Jerusalem to be there in time for the celebration of Pentecost. This would have been the year 58 AD. Now we get this information from St. Luke, his traveling companion, when Luke writes Acts of the Apostles. As Paul begins to make his way back to Jerusalem in the year 58, in the cities where he goes, certain prophets, people who had received the charism of prophecy, were given to understand by the Holy Spirit that great suffering and perhaps death awaited Paul in the holy city of Jerusalem. So they began to warn him. They began to try to stop him from going back there. They tried to dissuade him not to return to Jerusalem. Although they were speaking in the Spirit by telling him that great suffering awaited him, Paul himself was given to know this by the Holy Spirit. He understood that he was going back into a special kind of suffering that awaited him there so that God's plan for Paul, the Apostle Paul, might be fulfilled through him. But these same people were not speaking in the Holy Spirit by trying to stop him from going back there so that God's plan could be fulfilled. And this is why Paul says to them, it is recorded in Acts of the Apostles, he says, why are you weeping? Why are you trying to stop me? Why are you doing this? He said he must go back. So Paul writes the letter to the Romans because he is intending, after the visit to Jerusalem, to then embark on a journey to get to Rome. Now remember, Paul was a controversial figure. Paul had gone throughout the ancient world proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of salvation. And this is what he says in the beginning of his letter that he is doing here. He is about to explain to the Romans the very same gospel of salvation he has been explaining everywhere he goes. He uses the word gospel several times in these opening verses. 
The word gospel, which we often associate with the books that the evangelists wrote about the life, suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that sense of gospel fulfills what God had revealed under the Old Testament, that he would proclaim, reveal, send good news to his people, good news that would liberate prisoners, that would heal the infirm, that would announce a year of favor from the Lord. This good news would be realized in the person of the Messiah, the Son of God. So already God had been speaking for many, many centuries about good news that he would reveal to his people that would be visited upon his people. So when the news is fulfilled, the evangelists themselves, the apostles, go throughout the world proclaiming the good news that God had revealed, the glad tidings. Paul's proclamation of the gospel, his purpose is not to retell or to narrate the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, although he will speak of it constantly. He will refer to it constantly. What he wants to do is help people understand how it is we lay hold of this mystery. How do we, how are we inserted into this mystery? How do we embrace it? How does it become ours? How does this mystery of salvation happen? And so he begins to explain the saving justice of God in the person of the Son. So that the letter to the Romans, we might say, is a fairly complete exposition of Christian doctrine explaining the gospel of salvation. It explains to us how all the mysteries are connected and how it happens that we are saved in the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, after he finishes his greeting, he immediately goes on in verses 16 and 17 to say this of the gospel. He says, it is God's power for the salvation of everyone who has faith. This matter of faith is absolutely critical. Salvation of everyone who has faith. Jews first, because of the chosen people, the people to whom God had promised the fulfillment of the promise, but Greeks as well. For in it is revealed the saving justice of God a justice based on faith and addressed to faith. A justice that begins and ends with faith. It's about faith. And now he goes on to echo the words of the prophet Habakkuk, where he says, where God speaks through the prophet and says, anyone who is upright through faith will live. So this is his point of departure. In a sense, we may say that verses 16 and 17 of the first chapter states the theme of the whole letter. It's as if he is presenting to us his thesis statement. And now the whole letter will unfold and explain and develop what he has just written, told us in verses 16 and 17. This matter of faith, then, is absolutely critical. It is no accident that in 
the very first verses of this letter, verse 5 in fact, and at the very end or close of this letter, he uses the expression obedience of faith. This obedience of faith is our first obligation to God. Not just to believe, but to obey. The word obey is rooted in the Latin ob audire, audire, to hear or listen to, from which we have words like audio in the English language. It is to hear and listen most attentively, docilely, openly, humbly, so that we allow the Word of God to penetrate our being, to penetrate our mind and heart, and in penetrating, to transform us so that we begin to see differently. We begin to see in a better way, a higher way. We are transformed in the way we see, in the way we think, in the way we speak, in the way we live. This will be a fruit of obedience of faith. Our duty toward God, then, we might say, is to believe in Him, to believe in God, to trust in God, and to believe all that God has revealed, to believe everything God has divinely revealed. We cannot pick and choose if we are going to embrace the virtue of obedience of faith. We do not pick and choose. We accept at face value all of divine revelation and we bear witness to its truth. How do we bear witness? We do so by how we live, by how we speak, by how we think, by how we react, by the goals, the aims, the ultimate goal of our life, which ought to be holiness and heaven. If we understand this, we then begin to understand that ignorance of God, ignorance of divine revelation, is the principle and explanation of all moral deviations. If we don't know God, if we don't know what He has divinely revealed, and if we don't understand it, then our lives will not be righteous, upright. We will not attain to holiness, to purity of mind and purity of heart. Now, our ignorance can lack culpability in the sense that there are reasons that we are ignorant because maybe the gospel hasn't been proclaimed to us, maybe through the bad example of others, maybe because the world is pushing its thinking upon us. But where there is ignorance of God, in almost every instance, there is culpability to some degree. Why? because it is written into the human nature of the person to seek to know the truth throughout our lives. It is written into us. We all want the truth. We desire it. God has written this desire into us. We must heed it. We must respond to it. We must seek to know the truth, and in finding it, we must embrace it and we must configure our lives to that truth. That is why when we speak of ignorance of God, 
ultimately there is going to be some degree in the part of almost every person some degree of culpability because we can choose to harden our hearts against God against the truth we can choose to close our eyes so that we don't see to close our ears so that we can't hear to go our own way and to choose our own way of living to be rebellious against divine revelation and this kind of ignorance then leads to the corruption of our lives thanks for listening to real presence radio if you are just tuning in dr george of sacred heart productions is going through the new testament letters from knowing the scriptures bible study program for lessons study guides and more information please visit sacredheartproductions.org in this next segment Dr. George will be covering The Retribution of God Against an Ungodly World. And now, back to Dr. George. Following his introduction, Paul immediately begins by speaking about the retribution of God. And this is a rather hard-hitting point of departure when he says in verse 18, the retribution of God from heaven is being revealed against the ungodliness and injustice of human beings who in their injustice hold back the truth. For what can be known about God is perfectly plain to them since God has made it plain to them, to all mankind, he is saying, ever since the creation of the world. The invisible existence of God and his everlasting power have been clearly seen by the mind's understanding of created things. And so, he says, these people have no excuse. Really, no one has any excuse. He says they knew God, and yet they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but their arguments became futile and their uncomprehending minds were darkened. He could just as well be speaking about the world today, about the people in the world today. God in creating man has written into our being the natural light of reason so that we may know with certitude that God exists. We may know right from wrong. We have the power to choose the right and to avoid evil we are called to choose the right and to avoid the evil, the bad, the sin, the wrong. Now, if we want to understand the retribution of God, which is very difficult for some people because that word which we find in Scripture, just as we find the wrath of God, the anger of God, people tend to want to dismiss God as somehow a cruel God or even an unjust God because God speaks of the retribution that rests upon the world, that rests upon an ungodly world. And with this retribution, there are consequences. Now, to understand this, we have to go back to the beginning and remind ourselves first that God is just. He is perfect in his justice. God is perfectly good and perfectly wise. Not only what he creates is good, 
But his plan for the created order is good and perfectly wise. There is nothing wrong with it. When God creates man in his image and likeness, he creates man in justice. Man has the stamp of God's own justice upon him and within him. This is why we can speak of the original justice of man, of Adam and Eve, in the garden before they fell, before they turned away. In other words, everything was right at the beginning. They were right with God. They were right with the world. They were right with each other. They were right within themselves. They were righteous. They were upright. They knew with certitude God. God reveals to man. He makes his existence clearly known through the created order. This is why the authors of the books of wisdom in the Old Testament say, look at the sages of the world who study creation night and day. And he says, if they can come to knowledge in studying creation, why are they so slow to gain knowledge of its author? Why are we so slow? We have the same problem today in science. Science expends itself studying the material things, the things of the universe, the laws of the universe, and what is in the natural order. And yet, some of them are so slow to recognize the author, the creator, behind this marvelous order, this design, this harmony. It's magnificent. It's miraculous. They can't even explain most of it. So God has given us the created order. In addition to that, he has placed in man the power of intellect, the power to know. God himself has a mind, and we have the stamp of God's mind, that power within us. We are like God in how we can think. We are like God in how we can freely choose. And if we use our intellect properly to study the universe, to study the created order, and also if we use right reason to deduce certain principles, we can know with certitude by the light of natural reason God's existence. In other words, we are not doing our job, so to speak, as human beings to pass through life continually questioning God's existence, denying God's existence, rejecting the very concept of God. Now in the beginning, everything was right. It was all right. But man rebelled against God. God has written into us, he has shown us that what he wants is for man to live with him forever. We are created out of love, we are created for love. Man desires peace, happiness, wholeness, order, harmony, joy, all the things that are hardwired, so to speak, into our very being, into our nature. These God has put there so that they will help us, they will motivate us, they will keep us along a path 
to get back to the fulfillment of those, which is God himself and heaven. So in turning away from God, we turn away from the very things which will complete or fulfill us. This is why after the fall, after man's rebellion, what used to be ordered in the universe and in man himself became disordered. His intellect was wounded because he didn't use it properly. It was not ordered to God and to truth. So his intellect became wounded or darkened. His free will also became wounded or disordered. The flesh rebelled against the spirit. And man now was left with concupiscence, with this battle within him between flesh and spirit. The flesh not wanting to be subordinate to the soul, to the laws which God had written in man. In spite of all this, God did not revoke or withdraw his original plan, his promise, his invitation to man. Because at the very beginning, God invited man into friendship with him, to be friends with him, and to live in God's company. God did not revoke or withdraw his invitation. That invitation he still intended to fulfill in love. Now, if man's destiny is love, which it is because God is love and God is our ultimate destiny, we are called to live in relation with love. We are called to love. We desire to love. We want to be loved and we ourselves want to love. It's how we are made. But there's a condition about love which demands that freedom go with it. By creating us in love and ordering us to love, in a sense we could say that God had to, in a certain sense, give us free will. Why? Because love is not true love if it is not free. God gave us freedom because for us to love God as love and to do so in truth and in spirit, we had to be free beings. We had to be given the power to choose to respond to God freely. And in giving us that power, God himself guaranteed it and continues to guarantee it, which means that he shows us the yes that he desires, he gives us all the means necessary to understand his will. He writes into us the desire for the very things which will fulfill God's will. And he promises to provide for us, divine providence we call this, in every way so that ultimately at the end we can live with God forever in a communion of love. But we can respond by saying no. We can reject this. We can say no to God. Now, in that response of yes, we need to talk about the word tribute because we are God's creatures. And in justice, in truth, we owe to God our very existence. 
We owe to God our being. We owe to God our very lives. We owe to God all the gifts that we have ever received. And therefore, our lives, in a sense, we could say, become a tribute to God. Our lives should give to God what is his due. That's what tribute is about. Tribute is to allot. The word tribute means to allot, to assign, to pay another what is his due in gratitude, in praise, in honor, in respect. We must pay that tribute to God. But here's the marvelous thing about this. God reveals from the very beginning that if we simply receive from him all that he desires to give us, if we have faith in him and live lives of obedience of faith, in other words, that obedience means we have to trust that the laws of our nature and the laws of the universe are in fact good and wise and permanently binding. And if we say yes to that and live in that way, God says, at the end, you can share. You can share in, in my honor, in my glory, in my yes, in my life, in my love. I will pay back to you in the form of a reward this yes you give to me, which in a sense, this is the mystery of the word merit. When we speak about merit, in a strict sense, we must say that no human being merits anything before God. Everything that we merit is merited in the person of the Son. In other words, what we do, whatever good we do on earth, is because of the grace of God. It's because of what Christ merited. It's because of the life of the Holy Spirit. And yet, God allows us, He credits us with merit, which is real merit. God says, I will merit to you as righteousness. We'll get into this in the next lesson with Abraham, because faith and righteousness, we begin to understand, are very closely connected. So God says, I will reward you. I will give you that just tribute at the end of your life. So God will allot, assign to us. He will pay back to us whatever we have asked for. He says, you tell me what you wish and who or what you wish above all things in your life. And I will pay you that back at the end of your life. And if we say, Lord, it is you that I desire, the Lord says, it is me you shall have. But if we show him, in virtue of our lives, that what we desire are worldly things, the riches, the power of the world, the passing or transient pleasures of the world, if our life is filled with a response that says, Lord, all I want is this fleeting stuff here and now, and I even want things that displease you, and I'm not going to change the way I live, then the Lord says, okay, I respect your free will, and at the end of your life, I will give you the lot you have chosen. I will tribute to you. I will pay back to you. In other words, I will retribute what you have asked for. This is what retribution means. 
God is just. God is fair. But he is constantly calling us to repentance. The amazing thing, which we're going to get to shortly in this lesson, is that he withholds his own judgment because the retribution of God rests upon us in a certain sense. And God is calling us to repentance and to life in him. We cannot make ourselves just or right before God, which is why Christ takes upon himself our injustice and he hands over to us in exchange his justness. In exchange, he clothes us with his justness. And this is how he wills to present us before the Father. So we begin to see why faith in Jesus Christ, faith in divine revelation, is what is going to justify us. So God then has promised that he will give to us at the end of our lives what we have asked for. It's the best deal in the universe because all we have to do is ask for God and live as if that is what we really mean. As the Lord says, let your yes be yes. Live this way and at the end we get not only the peace, the wholeness, the order, the beauty, the glory, these things that we may desire. Those are attributes as it were. What we get is God himself. He is our reward. And in receiving God in heaven, we receive everything else besides, everything else along with him. Thanks for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you are just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the New Testament letters from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this final segment, Dr. George will be covering the position of the Jews in view of retribution. And now, back to Dr. George. After speaking of the retribution of God, which rests upon the world, an ungodly world, St. Paul now turns his attention to the Jews. And he begins in an interesting place by saying, don't start judging the Gentiles, the ungodly world, judging and then condemning them because they are an ungodly and a corrupt world. The Jews understood, of course, that they were the chosen people. They had received divine revelation. He says, if you pass judgment, the beginning of chapter 2, he says, no matter who you are, you have no excuse. It is you yourself that you condemn when you judge others, since you behave in the same way as those you are condemning. God makes clear in sacred scripture that the only one who can be a just judge is he who keeps the law perfectly. Well, the Jews, if they really understood this, knew that no one could keep the law perfectly. They tried. They tried. St. Paul tried. We know that he said, I kept the law better than most. And yet God revealed to him that he could not save himself. He could not make himself righteous. No one can do this, which is why God is the only one who can judge at the end of time. Jesus Christ is the only person on the face of the earth who kept the law perfectly. And anyone who was holy did so through the merits of Christ. This would go even for the people, the faithful servants of God, who lived 
before the time of Christ. If we speak of Moses or Noah or Elijah, John the Baptist, if we speak of any of the just people of the Old Testament, their justice, their faithfulness, all comes through the merits of Christ. It's a beautiful thing. So he says, no one is in a position to judge and condemn. He begins to speak immediately then about the law and circumcision, because these were two things by which the Jews felt they were, in a sense, justified or saved in the sight of God. And he says, look, he says, yes, they have received explicit revelation. They received the Ten Commandments. God gave them to Moses on the mountain. He says, yes, you've received explicit law. But he says, remember, all mankind has received the law. God has written the natural law on the heart of man. The Ten Commandments really are an expression, an explicit expression of the natural law. But the Ten Commandments then, if we're to understand the fullness of how they are to be lived, end up placing an even greater burden on the people because we begin to see all the different ways in which the law of God must be fulfilled in our everyday life. It becomes harder and harder. The more we know all the prescriptions of the law, the more we understand that it becomes a burden to us. It's hard to fulfill a thousand things all at once every day. But God revealed it because people could not read the law very well on their hearts. So God explicitly reveals to man the Ten Commandments. So it's absolutely clear. But Paul, in writing about the law, reminds the Jews, he says, do not forget, in verse 9, trouble and distress will come to every human being who does evil. Jews first, because they're more accountable. They have been given explicit divine revelation. But Greeks as well. Glory and honor and peace will come to everyone who does good, Jews first, but Greeks as well. There is no favoritism with God. Everyone has to answer to the law of God written on the heart of man. We must all answer to this at the end of time. Therefore, St. Paul goes on to say, all those who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. So if they hadn't received that explicit revelation, they still, if they sin apart from the law, they still are going to perish. And those under the law who have sinned will be judged by the law. For the ones that God will justify are not those who have heard the law, but those who have kept the law. And he goes on to say there are people who are not part of the people of divine revelation who lived good lives. And they too can be saved because they obeyed the law. They listened to the laws written in their heart and they obeyed them. He goes on to say something similar with regard to circumcision. He says, yes, circumcision indeed has its value if you keep the law because circumcision was a sign of the covenant. We'll be dealing with this again in the next lesson. He says, but if you go on breaking the law, you are no more circumcised than the uncircumcised. This would have been jolting for the Jews to hear. This would have been almost offensive. And if an uncircumcised man keeps the commands of the law, will not his uncircumcised state count 
as circumcision. Because the sign of circumcision was a sign that you lived in right relationship with God. So he says, will not the uncircumcised, the one who keeps the commands of the law, will not that uncircumcised state count as circumcision? He says, moreover, the man who in his native uncircumcised state keeps the law is a condemnation of you, meaning you who are the circumcised but who are rebellious sinners. Being a Jew is not only having the outward appearance of a Jew, and circumcision is not only a visible, physical operation. The real Jew is the one who is inwardly a Jew. Just as today in the New Covenant, the real Christian is the one who is inwardly a Christian. The person may call himself or herself a Christian and maybe be known by that externally, but God looks at the heart. God judges what's in the heart. St. Paul says, and real circumcision is in the heart. So after hearing this, the Jews must be thinking, what benefit then? What advantage is there in being a Jew? It looks as if we're in no better position at all. Because St. Paul has just finished making clear that the retribution of God rests upon them also. Now remember, that word retribution means that if we talk about the justice, the salvation that one receives at the end of his or her life, that salvation belonged to no one until Christ came and merited it for us. That's why after he dies, he goes down into the abode of the dead to release the just so that now they can enter heaven because the gates of heaven were closed until Christ was raised up in the flesh, as divine revelation makes absolutely clear. Now they were held, they were held in their justice, but they nevertheless were in the abode of the dead. So he says, he is making the point that saving justice comes through Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ. So he asks the question that he knows is on their mind and heart at this point. Is there any benefit then in being a Jew? He answers this in two ways. He begins by saying, of course, there is a great deal of benefit in every possible way. He says, the Jews, after all, are the chosen people, the beloved of God. The people knew, the Jews knew what God had revealed in the beginning. He had said through Moses, of all the peoples on earth, you have been chosen by the Lord your God to be a people his very own. They knew that they had been chosen. They weren't chosen for their greatness, however. If they recalled correctly, they were chosen because they were the smallest nation. They were the poorest nation. They were nobody, and God always loves the little, the poor, the small. He said through the prophet Isaiah, he is speaking, of course, of the Messiah, but the blessing and promise of the Messiah, that blessing, those blessings are very connected with the people, and in a sense we could say they rest upon Israel, Israel herself. When the Lord says the Spirit of the Lord, shall rest upon him. He is speaking of Christ, the anointed one of God. God is also saying that the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon his firstborn son who happens to be Israel. And so he says it will be a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and holy fear of the Lord. Remember when the Lord says through the prophet Jeremiah, before you were formed in the womb, I knew you. 
Now, it's as if he is saying, before you were formed in the womb of human history, I already knew you, I had chosen you. He says, before you were born, I consecrated you. A prophet to the nations, I appointed you. They were chosen, Israel was chosen to prepare the way of the Lord, to be a light to the world, a beacon amidst the darkness of an ungodly world. They were chosen for this. And the prophet Isaiah then goes on to say, Israel was sacred to Yahweh, the first fruits of his harvest. Israel is the first fruits of God's harvest. St. Paul is going to spend the whole of chapters 9 through 11 in this letter going back to this very matter and fleshing it out. Now, in spite of Israel having it easier, so to speak, why easier? Well, we could also argue harder, but easier because they were given explicit divine revelation. They had the patriarchs and the prophets. They had the priesthood. They had the temple worship. They had the explicitly revealed law, the code of holiness. They were given all this so that they knew exactly what would make them a pleasing people before God, how to live in the presence of God, in friendship with God. In spite of having all this knowledge, in spite of knowing that they had been given more than all the other nations, and knowing that they were therefore more accountable, in spite of this, Israel was unfaithful. She rebelled over and over again because her heart was hardened. And this is why in the last section of this lesson of our reading for today, St. Paul makes this point and he says, but in spite of all this infidelity, Israel was unfaithful, but God remained faithful. He didn't take away his promise. And in fact, he said, so faithful is God, once he reveals his will, his will will be done. He says, our injustice serve to bring God's saving justice into view. It's like the more mankind rebelled, the harder God worked to save him. In other words, the more he gave him. Where sin abounds, grace abounds the more, as St. Paul will write elsewhere. And then he goes on to say, you can say if this is true, that if our injustice makes God's saving justice all the more apparent and brings it into view, then how can God condemn anyone? How can he condemn anyone? Because if we're sinners and we stumble all over the place, it's God's problem. Then he can't condemn us. It's that he somehow fell short in bringing us to salvation. St. Paul says, out of the question, it would mean that God cannot be judge of the world. Because in the end, God is judge. He says, you might as well say that if my untruthfulness makes God demonstrate his truthfulness to his greater glory, then I should not be judged a sinner at all. He says this is foolishness. Of course it's out of the question. The magnificent reality is that man is unfaithful and God is ever faithful, but a day of judgment is coming. God reveals his judgment, we could say, in the person of the Son. But Jesus Christ is the revelation of the mercy of God, of the forgiveness of sins. In the person of the Son, God withholds his hand. He stays his justice, his judgment, so that we might be saved. 
God is being patient with us in this time of mercy. That's why when St. Paul proclaims the gospel in the Areopagus, St. Luke records this in Acts of the Apostles, he says, he explains, now overlooking the times of ignorance, we are in this time of ignorance, God is telling everyone, everywhere, Jews and Gentiles alike, they must repent because he has fixed a day when the whole world will be judged in uprightness by a man he has appointed. One God has endorsed in the sight of all by raising him from the dead. God has revealed this man, the person of Jesus Christ. He will be judged. First he comes in mercy, but he will stand as just judge at the end of time. St. Paul says to the Corinthians, since in God's wisdom the world did not come to know him through wisdom, we had every chance, we could certainly do it, but we rebelled, we rejected it. So in God's wisdom the world did not come to know him through wisdom. It pleased God to save those who believe through the folly of the gospel. So God is saving those who believe, those who have faith, through the folly, the folly of the gospel. And the folly of the gospel is God's goodness and God's wisdom. As St. Paul will say, through a Christ who is both the power of God and the wisdom of God. That is Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead. It is in him, therefore, that we believe, that we trust in God that we obey and through the strength of the Spirit poured out upon mankind, we learn to obey in faith. This is what St. Paul is going to continue talking about in the duration of this letter. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study on Real Presence Radio. Lessons, study guides, and additional materials can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org. Please tune in next time while we continue the New Testament letters. Dr. George will be covering Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through chapter 4, which include the following two topics. God showed his justice in the past by withholding his hand, and second, Abraham's faith was credited to him as justice. Knowing the Scripture's Bible study is designed to help people understand scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and his love for his bride, the Church. Mm-hmm.